Well, good morning, Convergent Church. It's great to be with you guys again after being away for a week. Uh, last weekend was actually the first time in two years since the inception of Convergent Church that uh, Sarah and I had a Sunday off where we weren't serving somewhere, whether here or somewhere else. So no preaching, no worship leading, no, no serving, just simply um, being fed in the word. So we actually went down to Indianapolis uh, to the last church that we helped plant down there. It's called Refuge Church. It's on the southeast side of Indy. And it was just a really encouraging time to see the work that God has continued to do there in them, to reconnect with old friends. But I've got to say, as awesome as that was, we missed you guys. It's great to see your faces again. It's great to hear your voices this morning. And if you're joining us for your first time, welcome. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Convergent Church, and we're so grateful that you've joined us. And if you don't know very much about us, we exist for three simple reasons. The first is to help people discover hope, which we believe is found in Jesus. Secondly, we exist to help people find their purpose, which comes from being servants of his kingdom. And thirdly, we exist to help people experience belonging, which we believe happens in the context of biblical community. And you, joined, you picked a great Sunday to join us this morning. We're kicking off a brand new sermon series titled Walking with the Word. We'll be working our way verse by verse through the gospel of John. Imagine what it would be like to walk with Jesus. Imagine meeting him for the first time, getting to know his heart, seeing him minister to broken and sinful people. Imagine listening to him preach and teach, imagining witnessing his miraculous works and coming to see him for who he truly is. Imagine walking with God in the flesh. Well, can I let you in on something? We don't have to imagine because the Holy Spirit preserved for us an eyewitness account through the testimony of John. We get to walk with Jesus, whom John actually calls the word of God. And in this series, we have one goal, and that's to come to know Jesus and by faith in who he is, begin walking with him. Now, this book was written by John, the son of Zebedee. He was one of Jesus's original 12 disciples. He was actually in his apostolic inner three and was often referred to as the one whom Jesus loved. Other portions of scripture written by John would be uh, the letter of 1 John, which was actually the first book that we preached through here at Convergent Church back in 21. He also authored 2 John and 3 John and Revelation. Now, I know that we have some teachers in the room. I know that we have some students in the room. So when you're thinking about a term paper or an essay, what's one thing that every paper must include? I got all day. I'm just kidding. Words, references, a, th a thesis statement. A thesis statement is something that must be included. It usually appears at the conclusion or maybe in the introductory paragraph of the paper. It offers kind of a concise summary of what the main point is, what the author is willing to convey in the particular document. It's often expressed in one sentence, but then reiterated in other places. Well, John pointedly tells us his thesis, his purpose in writing the gospel at the very end of the book, in the last two verses. In John chapter 20, and in verses 30 to 31, we read this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, 
which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I love John. He's, he's unashamedly evangelistic. He's, he's, his singular aim is that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ. And his composition of the book reflects that, because unlike the other gospel accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are really kind of chronologically laid out. The gospel of John isn't chronologically laid out at all. Rather, he quite literally says here that he chose particular stories and signs for the singular end, that we would believe. That's to say, John's gospel is not written to merely inform our intellect, to give us historical data, but instead to inflame our hearts with praise and adoration of this Jesus, that we would place all of our faith, that we would place all of our trust in him. And from the prologue of this letter to the epilogue, John sets out to answer two primary questions. Number one, who is Jesus? And number two, what did he come to this world to accomplish? Now, if you've been around the church very long at all, on the surface, those, seems like, those seem like pretty elementary questions, don't they? But consider this. Most pagan, that is to say non-Christian world religions, esteem Jesus and consider him to be an integral part of their religion's story. In Islam, Jesus is one of the most highly ranked and most beloved prophets of God. In the Sikh faith, Jesus is considered to be a saint. In the Hindu faith, Jesus is considered to be a great spiritual teacher. In the Baha'i faith, Jesus is one of many manifestations of God who reflect the attributes of the divine to the human world. In the Mormon faith, Jesus is one of uh, many men who can become a god. In the Gnostic faith, Jesus was considered the bringer of gnosis, or the bringer of spiritual knowledge. And that's just kind of starting to scratch the surface on what these other world religions say about Jesus. In fact, Jesus is the most written about, the most sung about, and the most painted person in all of human history. He was once even on the cover of Time magazine with this question, who is Jesus? So with all these world religions mixed and even contradictory views on Jesus, I think it's all the more pressing that we actually ask this question of who is Jesus, because clearly we all aren't talking about the same Jesus. All these world religions clearly aren't talking about the same Jesus that we profess. So how can we discern the difference? Who is the true Jesus? What is it that characterizes him? Somewhere along the line, we've inevitably heard or we've said something along these lines, right? My Jesus would never insert the blank. So which is he? Who does he reveal himself to be? And what is his purpose in coming to this earth? Let's go ahead and let's jump into John chapter 1 to find out. In John 1 and in verses 1 through 5, we read this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So jumping right in here, point number one, who is Jesus? We see this in verse one. We see that Jesus is God. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John begins with the premise here that Jesus himself is God. And this particular truth claim is one of the things that sets Christianity apart from all the other world religions. It sets Jesus, the founder of our faith, apart from the founders of the other faiths. In Islam, the prophet Muhammad claimed to know the way without being God. In Sikhism, the guru, uh, the guru claimed to know the way to God while also not being God. In Mormonism, Joseph Smith claimed to know the way to God without himself being God. Joseph Smith actually had a vision where this angel comes to him and, and says, all the Christians are wrong. You need to write this third testament of the Bible. And when he asked the angel what his name was, the angel said his name was Moroni. Now, just as a general rule, if an angel comes to you and when you ask him his name, he says, moron, I. It's probably, it's probably not someone we need to be listening to, but I digress. So what has Jesus spoken concerning himself? John 10, 30 says this. He said, I and the Father are one. In John 8, 58 he says, very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. And I am was the very name that God had designated for himself back in Exodus 3. John's gospel actually has seven I am statements in it. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the light of the world. I am the gate of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine, and probably the most notable, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the most substantial difference between the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus we're talking about here, and the Jesus of the other world religions. The false prophets of these other world religions claimed that they knew the way, but Jesus came and said, nope, I am the way. While they said, let me point you to God, Jesus said, I am God. I am God. In light of this revelation, it presents a serious issue for all the world religions as it pertains to their depiction of Jesus. Consider this quote from C.S. Lewis in the book, Mere Christianity. He says, I am trying to prevent here uh, anyone saying the really foolish thing that people most often say about Christ, which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. He says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. 
You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. C.S. Lewis here is saying that there's only three possible categories that we can put Jesus into. He's either liar, he's lunatic, or he is Lord. Liar. Jesus said he was God. So if he isn't, that would make him a master deceiver. That would make him a liar. And thus he could not possibly be the good moral teacher that these other religions espouse him to be. All right, but let's, let's give him the, the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he wasn't a liar, but Jesus said he was God. So if he isn't, that would then make him a lunatic, someone who is mentally unstable, not grounded in reality, and thus he couldn't be considered a wise saint. Or thirdly, could it be that he is Lord? Jesus is in fact God. He is who he says he is and is deserving of all worship. Given this information this morning, who do you believe Jesus to be? Given his own claims regarding himself, he is either a liar, he is a lunatic, or he is Lord. There is no neutrality. Either he's the best person to ever exist, or he is the worst person to ever exist. And get this, at the end of the day, Jesus wasn't put to death for being a good moral man. He wasn't put to death for being a good teacher. He wasn't put to death for being a prophet. Consider what John 5.18 says. It says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. By his own claims and by the revelation of Scripture, we see that Jesus is God. So my question is, will you receive him as such? I'll conclude this section with a quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He said, if any doubt his deity, they must do so in distinct defiance of the language of Holy Scripture. As we continue reading on in John 1, John continues to kind of pull back the curtain on what this entails. What all does it mean if Jesus is God? So still talking about this first point of who is Jesus. Jesus is God, but secondly, Jesus is eternal. We see this in uh, verses one and two. Let's read that again. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In the beginning, that sounds a lot like Genesis 1, doesn't it? The word beginning quite literally means the beginning of all things, the beginning of the world, the beginning of time as our finite minds can come to know it. He's saying before anything was created, the Son of God existed. And I love how John begins with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But then he circles back around in verse 2, just in case we miss it the first time. And he says, he was in the beginning with God. I think it's safe to say that John wanted to be crystal clear that we understand that Jesus, the Word of God, being God himself, was in the beginning with God. 
Jesus, the Son of God, is eternal and he is uncreated. He's eternal and he's uncreated. And this is actually another distinct feature of the Christian faith as it pertains to Jesus. Now, I realize I've been picking on Joseph Smith and the Mormons quite a bit this morning, um, and they're not the only ones who believe this way, but um, they believe that Jesus was this ordinary man who became a God. He, he, wasn't, um, he was a creative being that became divine. And notice it says a. I said a. He claimed to be a God, meaning one of many men to come and to become God. The problem is that, as we see here, the Bible would teach that Jesus, the Son of God, is eternal. He wasn't an ordinary man like you and I who eventually became a God. He wasn't a created being that became divine. Rather, he is the eternal God who has always existed but would eventually be born into this world as the God-man, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. Jameson's going to be teaching us some more on that in a couple of weeks here. The reality is that Jesus is God, that he is eternal. And this is intricately woven then into our next subpoint, which is this. Jesus is the creator. Let's go back to John 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now get this. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus is not only God, he's not only eternal and uncreated, but he himself is the creator. And similar to our last point, John states his point and then restates it back again to us, just in case we missed it the first time. He's saying, Jesus is the creator, and without him, nothing would have been created. We actually get a glimpse of this into Genesis, in Genesis 1, 1, which I referenced just a few moments ago. Genesis 1 says this. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, allow me to get a little nerdy for just a moment, where it says, In the beginning, God is the Hebrew word Elohim. It's a plural noun. It means more than one. So teased out, we can actually see the Trinity at work in creation together. It's saying, in the beginning, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit created the heavens and the earth. And here in John 1, John is simply echoing this creation account and identifying Jesus as being a part of that Godhead, as being the very agent of creation. Colossians 1, 16 through 17 further attests this reality. Paul wrote, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. All things are created through Jesus, the Son of God. He is God. He is eternal. He is the creator. And in Revelation 4, John gives us this vision into the throne room of heaven where we see the elders falling down before him, casting their crowns and proclaiming this, worthy are you 
our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the Jesus that we worship. As we transition to our last couple of verses this morning, um, John 1, verses 4 through 5, we'll see a couple other characteristics of Jesus that reveal precisely to us why he came to this earth. So what was Jesus's purpose in coming to this earth? Reading from John 1 again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In these final two verses here that we're going to look at this morning, we encounter a double meaning. It actually speaks of creation, and it speaks of our redemption. So let's, let's go ahead and let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. And let's read verses 1 through 5. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, that same word, Elohim, plural, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning on the first day. As the agent of creation, Jesus quite literally brought light into the darkness. The darkness that was over the face of the deep. At the dawn of creation, Jesus spoke light into existence, separating the day from the night on day one of creation. But then in day six, in Genesis 1, 26, it says, And then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let us after our likeness. You seeing this? This is Jesus in Genesis. This is the Father, Son, and Spirit working together in creation in Genesis. In the Genesis 2 account, it says, uh, the, the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. Jesus is light, and he is life. He brought light into the darkness of creation and life into mankind. You and I, we live, we move, we have our being because this light was given, because this life was given to us at creation. But ultimately, Jesus' working of light and life in creation foreshadows our redemption. It serves to foreshadow our redemption. If we were to continue reading in Genesis, we would see the fall of mankind. We would see our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebel against God, right? They'd disobey God's commandment. They'd seek their own glory over his, in spite of him telling them the punishment that would come, namely death, eternal death. 
This is when darkness returned to the world. But this time it was a spiritual darkness that brought with it this eternal death. Ephesians 2 speaks of our darkened state in this way. It says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, that's the example that was set before us in our first parents. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that was now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's talking about Satan. It says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You see, each one of us not only inherited the sin and spiritual death of our first parents, but we've actually willfully continued to walk in that rebellion, to continue to walk in that defiance of God. We've chosen to find our contentment in the created things of this world instead of the creator. We've made idols out of the good gifts that he has given to us. We've cursed his name. We've neglected to reserve a day each week to rest in him, to exclusively worship him. We've not honored our parents as we should. We've had hatred in our hearts towards other people. We've had lustful desires for other people who we weren't married to. We've stolen that which isn't ours. We've lied. We've looked at other people's possessions and said, I wish that those things were mine. You see, we haven't just broken one of God's commandments. We've broken all of them. And it's rendered us dead in sin. We were deserving of death. We were deserving of eternal separation and the torments of hell. We were deserving of God's wrath. But here's the good news. Just as Jesus spoke light and brought life into the dark void of creation, so he brings forth light and life into the dark world of our sin and of our death. Genesis 3, 16, probably the most well-known, most famous verses in the Bible says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. So it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. You see, because of God's love for you, he didn't leave you to meet the bitter end that you deserved. No, instead he stepped down into glory, being born of a virgin into this world, to shine his light into your darkness. Jesus came and fulfilled the law's demands by never sinning in thought or in word or in deed and ultimately went to the cross to die in your place for your sin. He was buried, but then on the third day, he rose from the grave that you could have life. And in that life, eternal. Jesus shines his light into your darkness so you can see the need for rescue. 
But get this. Jesus traded his righteousness for your wickedness so that you could have eternal life. He now invites any and all who are weary, any and all who are burdened to come to him. You don't need to clean yourself up. Actually, as a matter of fact, you can't clean yourself up. Jesus isn't offering you a second chance this morning. He's offering you a new life entirely. And while all the things we've discussed up to this point are in the past tense, consider John 1, 5. We'll see a striking present reality. It says the light shines into the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. That's to say, you're not too far gone. The light is still shining. The scriptures resound. Today is the day of salvation. Will you place your faith in this Jesus who is God? Will you turn from your sin? Will you place your trust in him? Because he is faithful to meet you where you are. And whatever darkness may remain in you is no match for his light. And get this, the good news of God's grace is more than just eternal life after mortal death. It's the good news that you can be reconciled to your heavenly father in this life, today even. You don't have to walk alone in darkness another day of your life. As a matter of fact, he fills you with his spirit to comfort you, to guide you, to direct you, to remind you of his love for you until the day when his kingdom arrives in fullness, where there is no more sin, where there is no more death, and where all sadness has been eradicated once and for all. Now, as we begin to kind of wind down and wrap up our time here this morning, I realize some of you may have come in here this morning asking this question to yourself even of who is Jesus? Maybe you're thinking, I'm not sure about this church thing. I'm not sure about this religion thing. But what I know is what I've been doing hasn't been working. Listen, Jesus is God. The creator God desires a relationship with you today. Now, others of you may have come here this morning uncertain of your identity, asking not who is Jesus, but who am I? Where did I come from? What is my purpose? You are a son and a daughter of the Most High God, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared for you beforehand that you would walk in them. He has placed you here on this earth to do something that only you can do. Some of you may be here feeling insecure, uncertain, maybe even fearing things in this world. Listen, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. And just as he is eternal, he extends eternal life to you. Come what may, your future is secure. Your heavenly inheritance is certain. Jesus didn't promise that things would be easy in this life, but he did promise that he would be with you come what may. He had also promised that these light and momentary afflictions are preparing for you an eternal weight 
of glory that far surpasses any of the heaviness you could walk through in this season. And lastly, some of you may be buried in the pits of anxiety and depression. And let me say, I know that weight all too well myself. But remember this, Jesus is the light. Remember, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's plotted. It's tried. It's exhausted all of its efforts, but it could not overcome it. Jesus is with you by his spirit, even in your darkness, and he is faithful to deliver you. If you leave here this morning hearing nothing else, hear this. Jesus is God, born into this world to deliver mankind from death and darkness. He is God. He is eternal. He is the creator. He is the light. He is life. And he came to give you life, eternal life, a more abundant life. So may we go to him now with thankful hearts for who he is and for all that he has done for us.